Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, November 24th. In the dynamic world of fashion magazines, Gabriella Carefa Johnson has always stood out. In 2021, she became the first black woman to style a cover for American Vogue. Later that year, she worked on the cover shoot featuring U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. But recently, Gabriella decided to leave Vogue. That resignation was something that was right for me at the time. Still is right for me. I'm excited to see what I'll do in the future, unattached to one specific brand and one specific magazine. And the truth of the matter is, like anything else, you know, we grow and sometimes our containers don't grow with us. And so I am excited to build a new container for all of these ideas and this energy. This week on the BOF podcast, Gabriella discusses why she resigned from Vogue and how she is channeling her influence and energy to support the next generation of fashion talent. Here's Gabriella Carefa Johnson on the BOF podcast. Well, hello, Gabriella Carefa Johnson. Welcome to the BOF podcast. This is a conversation that has been long under discussion, and we are finally here to have our showdown, lowdown, hoedown. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing really well. I'm like, 
I can't believe we're halfway through the short season. You know what I mean? (laughs) We're about to be right back on the circuit. I know. And for those listeners who don't know what Gabriella is referring to with the short season, the space between Fashion Week in September and Fashion Week in February, inserted with a holiday over Christmas and New Year's, is a very short space of time to get everything done. And so what we find is that February rolls around more quickly than you can imagine. And I certainly feel the same way, but uh, I'm looking forward to some time to rest over the break. We are here today to do two things, really. One is, as always, to examine your career, your personal journey, your professional journey, you know, everything that you've learned on this ascent that you've had in the industry over the past few years, but also to address a topic close to both your heart and mine, which is how we can support young designers, creativity, and the future engine of this industry, which has been more and more under pressure in recent years, especially in London and New York. And we're going to get to that a bit later in the conversation. But as always, I want to start with your story and where you began. And my first question is really what little Gabriella Carifa Johnson was like. We know the Gabriella (laughs) of today, but what were you like when you were younger? I think little Gabriella Carifa Johnson was very similar to grown-up Gabriella Carifa Johnson. I was outspoken. I was loud. I was a handful. I think my mother would say that I was the apple of her eye in retrospect, but I think in the moment I was really a lot to handle because I just knew who I was from a very, very young age. And it kind of colored every experience I had in my life from, you know, school to university, to internships, to the job that I have now. But, um, so wait, I want to interrupt you for a sec. So you said you knew you were from a very young age, what three words would you use to describe yourself? Mm, weird, <laughs> loud, and oh my God, the third one kind of escapes me. I think weird and loud pretty much sum it up. But I think if I had to pick one other word, it would be... Driven? Driven. That's a great word. That's a great word. I think it definitely encapsulates how I approach my work and encapsulates how I approach my kind of the manifest destiny aspect of how I've always been about my life. You know, I'm strategic and a planner. And so when I decided that I wanted to be in the fashion industry, I did everything I could to make it happen. How did you know you wanted to work in fashion? Like, where did that come from? My aunt was a model in the 70s and 80s, and she was actually like a little bit older for a model at the time. She had started in her late 20s. And so by the time the 90s rolled around and I was born and we would go to her home for Thanksgiving or family gatherings, I found my way into these huge chests she had of her comp cards and all of her tear sheets and all of the kind of ephemera of her modeling career. And I was drawn, I think, to the visual material of it all. I think right up until I was probably in the first grade, I really wanted to be a visual artist. I was like, I'm going to be a painter. I loved finger painting and I loved watercoloring. And so I always wanted to work kind of in the visual arts field. And so when I saw these images, I started kind of thinking like, oh, there's a whole industry that operates around creating beautiful pictures that tell stories and my aunt is in them. Like, how does that happen? So it really started with this passion for modeling and this idea that maybe I could be like Auntie Rosalie and I could be in these 
pictures and I can be a conduit of this creativity. And then it did not take very long for me to realize that at the time, models didn't really look like me. (laughs) And so I just started exploring what fashion was. And it wasn't until I was in probably my senior year of high school that I realized how broad the industry was and how many ways one could engage with it and still be a visual storyteller. And I just kind of like experienced what I could. I did a billion internships and it just happened that I met Tani Goodman and became her fashion assistant and kind of the rest is history. But we can get into the history if you want to. (laughs) Well, but before the Tawny moment happened, like you went off to university and you didn't go to fashion school. Like why did you choose to go to Barnard and not go to like Parsons or FIT? I think the reason why I didn't go to fashion school is not because I didn't want to. I desperately wanted to be in fashion school, but I come from a family that really valued academics and really was filled with doctors and lawyers and these thought leaders, you know, ecumenical leaders, you know. (laughs) I think I had a bit of reservation about working in the fashion industry because it didn't demonstrate that kind of intellectual rigor that I I saw for myself that my family wanted for me. And of course, I've been proven completely wrong in that regard. But there was a bit of like embarrassment around wanting to go into fashion. It was seen as frivolous and it was seen as, you know, not a, it was not a serious pursuit for the people around me. And so I think out of fear, I just really wanted to have that liberal arts anchor and that education that could serve as a base wherever I wanted to be. And to be honest, I wasn't so far off the mark. I think it was really smart to kind of gain this foundation. I studied art history and French and having that foundation in both of those disciplines has been enormously helpful in my career. But yeah, if I'm being totally honest, I think it was a fear, a fear of not being taken seriously, a fear that I was letting my folks down and also a fear that I just didn't really belong there. As I said, you know, I grew up with folks that had their noses buried in books and and not so much buried in Manolo's. So it was a learning curve that that scared me a bit. But hey, internships. <laughs> yeah, you managed to do both because while you were studying and burying yourself in books, you were also burying yourself in Manolo's and you had a bunch of internships. Like as someone who is a complete outsider, how did you get your first fashion internship? Because it's that first one that's like the hardest to break in, you know? Yeah. Well, this isn't very chic to admit, but I grew up in the era of the hills. And so that is really how I became aware of the internship structure and the fact that it existed in fashion. Like I knew interns as like medical interns who worked for my mom. (laughs) You know, I didn't know that that was something that you could do in creative fields. So as soon as I realized that that was possible and I was going to be in New York, I was like, okay, I got to find a way to balance my studies and like creating a space for myself in this industry that isn't really set up for me. I don't have connections. I don't, you know, I haven't grown up in this space. So I did what any kind of like analytically minded strategic thinker does. And I researched and I found kind of the formulation for emails for all of these different companies. And I, and I kind of figured at that point I wanted to work in magazines. This was actually just before the September issue, but it was right after the Devil Wears Prada. And so I was really kind of focused on the way that I could fulfill that 
analytical, intellectual itch, and also the tactile, working with clothes, visual stimulation of fashion. And magazines kind of were the container that had both of those. So I found the formulation for Teen Vogue. And at the time, the fashion assistant's name was James DeMolay. And I sent him an email, a dry email. Like I had no idea who he was. He didn't know who I was. I didn't even know how to apply to a job or an internship at this point. And I was like, look, I don't have any experience, but I'm a hard worker. I'm a fast learner. I will be the first one in and the last one out. Just give me this chance. He was like, no. <laughs> it was like, you. we need people when this is Condé Nast, this is Teen Vogue, we need some experience. So my resume had nothing on it. So I did probably the most annoying thing ever that if I received this, I would, I mean, maybe it would be charming, but I think it would be also like very annoying. <laughs> I made a dream resume of four years down the line when I graduated from college where I would want to be and the jobs I would have had and the experience I would have to qualify me for his job. I was like, and then I'm going to apply to be the assistant of Teen Vogue. And he either found it charming or not, but I ended up at Teen Vogue somehow. And how was it? I mean, the learning curve was super sharp. I actually started in fashion news under Jane Keltner Diwale. She was one of my first mentors, actually. And I just remember walking into this like quite corporate, put-together environment. And I was doing a lot of research. And there was a lot of kind of background information that I think they expected me to know. I, I, on that job, I learned how to pronounce Loewe. I'm a French speaker. <laughs> and I really thought it was low. But I picked up on the foundation that I needed to be able to go on and do, I think I must have done seven internships before I I finally graduated. But it was like, it was nice. It, it made me feel like I could do it because I worked my butt off and I proved that I was valuable outside of the things that I was lacking, which was kind of exposure and experience. It made me realize that with enough work and dedication, I could probably make it in this industry. So I'm really thankful for Jane in that first internship because it proved to me that I could be accepted in that space. So for all those people out there, and you and I both know that there's a lot of them who hear the words fashion assistant or fashion closet or fashion intern and assume that it's just a bunch of menial, no brain, no rigor, no skill work. You said it was such a sharp learning curve. Like what is it about this industry, that job, that makes it such a hard job to do right and hard job to do well? Well, one thing is that it's incredibly logistically oriented. So it's like you have to be able to understand the landscape of the magazine, all of the editor's deadlines, the things that you can support them with, the things that are out of your hands, and then also be able to navigate the entire city of New York to pull these things off. So yes, in one way, you're a courier and you're getting coffee and you're bringing in the samples, but on the other hand, it's like you're researching for this piece that needs to file in two and a half hours. And at the same time, you really need to make sure that Lisa in the L.A. office knows that Amy is going to be 25 minutes late to this call because she's in a meeting with Jane. It was very much learning the dynamics of fashion in the microcosm of an office. Like you, you learn the hierarchy. You learn kind of like the connective tissue between departments. You have to kind of speak a holistic magazine language, not just know how to pronounce designers' names. And you really get like a front row look at how to put a magazine together. And, and it would take an entire podcast to describe how, how that is done. But at the assistant level, 
what you're relied upon for. It's just to make sure things run smoothly. There's actually a lot more at stake than one thinks when they think of an assistant. It's kind of like, oh, whatever, you put two and two together and everything is on your boss. It's like you really have to learn to anticipate your boss. You have to kind of become their brains. That's something that I learned much later on as a fashion assistant for Tawny. You really have to absorb their aesthetic, their taste. You have to be able to anticipate their choices. You have to be able to bring them material to review that you know that they'll relate to. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. I know you said we didn't have time to talk about what it takes to put a magazine together, but I'm so curious. And, you know, maybe we can just have an abbreviated version of that conversation. As someone who's always worked in digital media, like BOF was digital from day one. Of course, we've Mm -hmm. done like printed things in the past. I think we've made up our own way of doing it. But like, what does it take to put together a monthly fashion magazine? How does it all work? Well, if it's a good magazine, there should be an organizing principle around each issue. So the first step is kind of like identifying what this issue collectively should represent, what it should be communicating to our audiences. And in theory, that idea should be something that they want to see. You know, you're never like throwing something down your reader's throats. Like it's an implicit understanding of what your audience wants. So once you have that down, it's kind of the cultivating of ideas phase. So there are so many departments within a magazine. I'll speak from the fashion perspective because fashion editing is what I do. We go to these fashion shows, which I have a very weird analogy or metaphor rather to um, describe what a fashion editor does. But I think of us as like these little space travelers and we load up our spacesuits with all of our tools and we get into our crafts and we fly to these worlds unknown that are built by these incredible leaders who have engineered every little part of this world. And we go and we collect our samples and we see how they talk and how they dress and who this woman is and what she wants to show up in the world as. And then we take all of that data and we metabolize it and we come back to our home planets and we disseminate it to our audiences. So our kind of data sifting phase happens after the collections where we've seen all of these worlds from all of these designers. And we try and find these common threads between the shows we've seen to be the anchor of our fashion stories. I get really excited once I've seen something three times because I know then there's at least a kernel of an idea. And that's why going to the collections is so important. And I think the reason why I relate to it so much is because, as I said, I'm a nerdy person and research is my favorite part of the process. So once we get those ideas, we pitch them So wait, when you come back from the shows, I mean, I go to the shows too, but I probably go with a slightly different lens Mm -hmm. than you do. Like for me, it's such an incredibly important information gathering moment from like talking to everyone, learning what like what's on the minds of the CEOs and what the designers are thinking about and what the people like you, the fashion editors are doing. But when you guys come back from fashion week, do you sit in a room and like analyze it all together? Is that how it works? And you just come up with me? Yeah, that's exactly it. We have a big meeting, even folks that weren't at the shows, but who have been, you know, following Vogue Runway and looking at all of the collections. We come to the table with kind of like our pitches, but they're looser than that. They're ideas, they're talking points. And we really have a collective conversation. I think community input is really important. Diversity of perspective is really important in building a magazine. And 
eventually, after enough of those meetings, we have one big one where we really go through everything. And then as meetings go by, you narrow it down to actual ideas that then enter a lineup. And then we go out and execute those ideas with our own photographic teams, hair and makeup artists, models. Casting is always the biggest kind of challenge in putting a fashion story together and making a photo shoot happen because we all have crazy schedules and these women are in very high demand. And then when the pictures come in, if they are acceptable for printing, then it's done and dusted. They go in the magazine and the features team does what they do and have all these incredible words to accompany all these amazing images. And the ads do what they do, which is help us create these amazing shoots and finance this project. And then they hit newsstands and people destroy you in the comments of Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) It's true though, because so many more people see fashion editorials now on Instagram than they do in a magazine. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, What's the most complex fashion shoot you have had the responsibility for executing upon? And how did you manage to do it despite its complexity? Mm -mm -mm. Well, (laughs) two come to mind pretty immediately. One, I would say visually does not communicate its complexity, but I'm telling you, it was difficult. <laughs> and that would be the Vogue cover of Vice President Harris, which was highly scrutinized after it came out. And it was two pictures, one that was intended to run inside the magazine, one that was intended to run on the cover of the magazine. And we like just weren't really sure which was going to be which. And what was really, really difficult about that is that we had to execute that entire cover shoot in 25 minutes, which I don't think anybody knows because as a leader of the free world, it is very difficult to find spare minutes in a schedule for a fashion photo shoot. So we really had 25 minutes to execute that. And what was so challenging was it's very hard to communicate with your subject, which is super crucial in executing an image. Like you need to have a relationship and a rapport and there needs to be mutual trust there, but it's hard to establish that, you know, between 15 masks because it was during COVID at the time and 14 secret service agents and a press secretary and a chief of staff. So it was difficult in that It was so completely opposite from what I'm used to in photo shoots. And what was also difficult was kind of the number of eyes and the number of opinions and the reception outside of people who care about magazines and who care about fashion, who care about Vogue. Now, You mean after it came out? After it came out, yeah. And why was it, apart from the fact that she's the vice president of the United States of America, like why was it so scrutinized, do you think? And was that scrutiny, in hindsight, do you think it was fair? I definitely don't think that the scrutiny was fair, although I do think that there's validity to a lot of the arguments that I did see online. One was that it wasn't just because she was the vice president and that in itself comes with a much larger audience than what fashion magazines typically are speaking to. It was that she was the first woman vice president and the way in which we use fashion, we weaponize fashion as a society against women in power is something that added kind of another level of of scrutiny. And then in addition to that, she was the first Black woman. So then there were respectability politics that we were kind of juggling. And one of the biggest 
criticisms that I saw, at least online, because I try not to read them, was that we had presented her in this like really relatable and humane and real way, which I think is what a lot of people like about Vice President Harris, that she coming after an administration that had very little humanity in the eyes of many and wasn't relatable in the eyes of many, that she had this connection with the real woman and the real person and the real American. And so we presented her on the cover in Converse, which she wanted to wear, that she wears all the time as a signature style of hers, and kind of in an off moment, this like real moment, which oftentimes is where the best picture happens. It's not in the pose, in the perfectly composed image. It's kind of in that off moment where someone's moving or thinking, or when a moment of truth arises in an image is is when they're being real and living that image. So it seemed like a really interesting and cool way of presenting this woman, but I think it was perceived as disrespectful or setting her up for engagement with her image and her person in a way that wasn't entirely respectful or professional. And I understand theoretically that fear and I understand anger being produced, especially from the Black female community about that as a Black woman respectability politics are real. The idea of having to kind of show up in a way that affirms your professionalism, your expertise, your respectability is something that, you know, white women don't have to deal with. So I I understood that criticism, but it was really hard for me to metabolize because, you know, I felt like I let my community down. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, it was just in a lot of ways, but it was also like, a bit unfair. The other side of that coin is that if she wasn't a Black woman, I don't know if people would feel so comfortable criticizing her in the way that they did and criticizing that image in the way that they did. So it was a double-edged sword. And if I recall correctly, I remember waking up that morning and seeing the furor that had erupted online. There was also a question around why that image was chosen and the other one in the the kind of off-white suit wasn't chosen. So there was this question about like, well, why would you choose that as a cover? But you're right. I mean, it's the truth with everything nowadays is this, the online scrutiny is often coming from people who don't understand or make assumptions about why something is done. And you can often not really, you can't say anything while all that's going on. And then that vacuum gets filled with speculation. And then mm. it, we all know what happens. Then it's just like a, a storm. You said there was one other shoot that came to mind. <laughs> yes. What was that one? I was actually also thinking about another cover shoot, but I will actually, I think I should talk about a story that I just did in Japan, which was my first time in Japan. And the what you kind of just to set the scene It was one of my last stories that I did when I was working at Vogue magazine, and I was just so obsessed with it being the best story that was going to be in the issue. I was like, this is just going to be iconic. We have Devin Aoki's return to editorial. There was a lot of pressure writing on this shoot. One thing that I think people don't understand is that, like everything else, budgets are dramatically smaller in the fashion editorial space. So... When I started, you might have a two-day shoot, or if you're really lucky, you might have a three-day shoot. When I was an assistant, you'd probably still have a three-day shoot, but like if you had to reshoot, that's okay. You know, we'll throw some more money at it and we'll get the right picture. When my boss, Tani Goodman, was working as a fashion editor in the very beginning of her career, she had two weeks. (laughs) They would go to like... Italy and wait for the sun to come up so that they have a brilliant cover with 
if it's raining, you know? And so here we are in 2023 trying to execute this amazing story in Japan. We have one day to get close to 20 pages, which conservatively should be 14 pictures because you're going to maybe have some double page spreads. You'll have some portraits. There might be text involved, but you should have like 12 to 14 pictures. And it was just so difficult logistically to land, (laughs) be jet lagged to a way. I don't know if you've ever like, you've probably traveled to Japan. You understand (laughs) the the severity of the jet lag to hit the ground running to achieve multi-location images. Because here's the thing about fashion editorials that have to do with travel. You want to create a holistic picture of this place because then you could fall into the idea of a monolith of Japanese culture. If you're only showing one one place and one type of thing, it's really dangerous in terms of the story we're telling about visiting Japan. So we have a million different locations to get to. Eating on the go is not a thing in Japanese culture. So, so there's you're no food, you're just dying to get the perfect picture. It's in the best season possible for Tokyo. And it's raining. Out of nowhere, it's raining. And it just was one of those moments where it was like, you know, remember Project Runway, Tim Gunn's famous phrase, make it work? It was like, we're going to make it work. We're going to freak it. And we just all banded together. We called up every person we know. Maybe there's a connection to the American ambassador in Tokyo. And I know that they have a canopy over their garden. So maybe we can take that photo. Okay, maybe if we go and we can do this photo in a stairwell because it will still feel like we're ascending the roof of the tallest building in Tokyo, but we're really kind of faking it. And it was one of those like movie magic, except for fashion magic moments that you can't even begin to (laughs) explain, but it was a miracle. And I have to say, because of everything going wrong, the photos were some of the best I've ever taken, you know, if I've ever been involved with. We'll be right back with more on the BOF Podcast. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. 
So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You have just touched on what I think is the magic of fashion, which is working under sometimes impossible constraints, whether they be budgetary constraints or weather constraints or logistical constraints. I feel like this is an industry, you know, like they say, like diamonds are created under lots and lots of pressure. Yeah. Sometimes like amazing things happen in this industry because of that pressure, because of Mm. that, like making the most impossible things work, you know? And so the other thing that happens is if you're working with the right kind of people and you're creating the right kind of environment, that brings people together and creates this like shared creative moment. Uh, It's called trauma bonding. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's trauma bonding. But that kind of brings me to the other line of questioning I had for you today, Gabriella, is like, we have this high pressured industry. It can be really difficult. So like, there's a fine line between creating beautiful things under pressure and creating situations which are unacceptable in terms of like, the mental health of the people involved and like the way people are treated. And you know, you, you and I both worked in the industry long enough to know that it can be a really tough industry. And you know, everyone's striving for such a high standard of output. Some people call it perfection, which is impossible to achieve. But how do you think about navigating that? So you're still creating enough of the pressure to create that beauty, but not so much pressure that it breaks people. It's really hard. And if I'm being completely honest, like I have struggled very seriously with burnout and my mental health has suffered in the pursuit of, as you say, perfection. And to be honest, I was very lucky to at least be kind of raised in this industry by mentors who were anomalies in the sense that they they actually created a safe space to grow and they nurtured me and they taught me and there wasn't so much toxicity in our specific working relationships. But there is really a kind of a shroud of extraordinary pressure, which 
instead of turning into diamonds, turns into like toxic energy and environments and in the fashion industry. And the way that I navigate it is a lot of the times like head down, power through. It's like my mantra and it's not the healthiest approach. And the only reason why I'm divulging this on this podcast is as a cautionary tale, like there is this idea that fashion is a hard place. And if you can't hack it, get out. It's like, it's supposed to break you. The ones who break are the ones who don't have what it takes, you know? And it just shouldn't be that way. And I think really there are active participants in reversing that kind of culture. I think you're one of them, Imran. I think I try to be one of them. I think my generation of of colleagues and creatives are also trying to break that cycle. But just staying true to who you are and realizing that your work is yours, but it's for the good of others and like really maintaining the kind of like purity of that creative exchange is something that keeps me grounded. Politics are really hard to navigate in any industry. And I think fashion is a little bit trickier than most because it's not necessarily a meritocracy. So working hard, keeping my head down are ways that I've survived, but I'm hoping that in the future I can open myself up to take more risks and be more myself despite how that sometimes gets me into trouble. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you faced no shortage of criticism and challenge. You know, I think anyone who's followed a bit your journey knows that like there's the work ethic, the pressure side of things like protecting the mental health. And then there's also just the the wider industry, some of the challenges you faced externally from the day-to-day work and just being in this very highly visible role that you you've had. How have you navigated that? <sighs> You know, sometimes I'm not sure I have navigated it very well, but the fashion editor that I am is, I think, different from the fashion editors that I modeled my career after in that I built a platform based on who I am and what I have to say in conjunction with building a career attached to a magazine that is at the highest height of the editorial mountain. And so I've always had to kind of balance the responsibility of being in a in that rarefied air and in that extremely privileged space of working in fashion editorial with being true to who I am and what I wanted to do in the fashion industry, which was broaden the representation as a fashion editor and also tell stories that historically haven't been told through fashion imagery. So I kind of really lucked out in that my career ascent kind of aligned with society finally reconciling or reckoning at least with the fact that Black voices weren't valued in the way that they should be, especially in this fashion industry. So I was able to achieve my mission in tandem with climbing the ladder. But I think very easily if I had started working 10 years earlier or 10 years later, I wouldn't have successfully navigated the space. Like there's a good amount of luck and timing that played into my success. So you've alluded to this a couple times in the conversation already, but I think we should talk about it explicitly. You've recently left Vogue. Is that right? Is that a decision that, you know, you've talked about? And like, I don't even know what the truth is there, what's actually happened. Yeah, I have recently left Vogue. And the truth is that I was a 
contracted employee there as the global fashion editor at large. And my contract was up for renewal and I decided not to renew it. That really is the truth. That resignation was something that was right for me at the time, still is right for me. I'm excited to see what I'll do in the future, unattached to one specific brand and one specific magazine. And the truth of the matter is like anything else, you know, we grow and sometimes our containers don't grow with us. And so I am excited to build a new container for all of these ideas and this energy. That's so powerful. I'm so proud of you for doing that. That's just like, because for anyone who doesn't understand how this industry works, like having a name like Vogue attached to you, you can become kind of connected or use that as a crutch because you believe that that is what's opening the doors. But for me, what I read in your decision and your resignation is that you can just open those doors yourself now. You don't need to be attached to Vogue or any other big brand because you are Gabriella Karifa Johnson. That is the hope. And I really do think that, you know, if I haven't built something that can stand on its own outside of being connected to Vogue magazine, then I haven't really done much and I should (laughs) get to work. So yeah, we will see. But I feel really supported in this industry in a way that I haven't always. And I feel like I've really created a space for myself. And I think open doors for others. And I just hope that whatever comes to be of this career of mine is something that models possibility for the next, you know, Gabriella Krefa Johnson. And I loved and learned so much at Vogue magazine. It's my home. I grew up there and I can't wait to take those tools and apply them in ways that are really just true to who I am and serve me, you know, and serve people who look like me and people who listen and follow me, you know, it's about serving that community now. And if I were to kind of extend an idea or a thought that you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, in this industry, you have built your reputation and your career, not just based on your skills as a fashion editor, but also as your voice as a fashion editor and being able to use that voice. And you've been very vocal at times. Yeah. Do you find that that was in conflict with being part of a big organization? Like part of what made that container not grow with you is you didn't have the space to be kind of free to kind of vocalize and say what you think? I don't because I did anyhow. (laughs) I really, there really isn't much that can stop me from speaking my mind and speaking my truth and advocating for what's right. And that's something that I was raised with, that I learned from my mother and my father and my grandparents. It's like in my blood and my lineage. So I don't think that there was a ceiling. I I certainly feel that Vogue was supportive of me in the most controversial of moments in my career and, and was behind me being who I am. I think that, to be honest, I was hired at Vogue for my voice in a lot of ways. You know, I had worked there for many years, you know, as an assistant, both with Hamish Bowles and then with Tawny Goodman. So in the feature side and in the fashion side. And I don't know if I would have become the global fashion editor at large if I didn't have more to bring to the table than amazing images, because there are so many people who make amazing images for that magazine. That old adage, you know, a million girls would kill for this job is not hyperbole. 
it's really real. So I've always found it to be a value add and something that's unique to who I am, that I have something to say and I'm not afraid to say it. And I also think that that's kind of what being a fashion editor should be. It's so much more than making an image and putting clothes on a model. Like when I distinguish between a stylist and a fashion editor, that's the distinguishing factor. It's like there's a point of view, there's a perspective, and that should be a reflection of our ideas, our value systems, our our praxis. So I think I've always been hired because of the full picture of who I am. And I really didn't feel encumbered by being attached to any any of the organizations I'm attached to, but not Vogue most recently. I think I've always been really supported there. You talked just now about opening doors up for others. And, you know, I wanted to talk to you about Tori Sheju. And I, yeah. I, I won't forget, we were at dinner in New York, I think. And you hustled over to me. We were having a BOF <laughs> dinner and you said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of getting this show put together for this designer I really believe in. And we're going to do it at the Shangri-La Hotel across the street from the Miu Miu show. And it'll be right afterwards and be amazing if you came. And I was, you know, I was happy to, to have attended, but maybe you could share with us a little bit about why you honed in on Tori Sheju and you know what it is that you were trying in your own way to help address in terms of the barriers that so many young designers face. I mean, I'll let people in on a conversation that you and I were having, which is that it feels like in key cities like London and New York, which historically have been known as a breeding ground or petri dish for the creativity that you know we now see in some of the big houses because some of those designers have kind of grown into you know Jonathan Anderson at Loewe or you know Mathieu Blasey at Bottega Veneta or you know Daniel Lee at Burberry like we've seen these names emerge but now post covid especially it feels like something's not working you know something's awry i mean it, don't get me wrong it was always challenging for young fashion designers to set up brands and build businesses, but it seems more challenging than ever. Yeah, I totally agree. And that was really the impetus for me working with Tori Sheju. I met her at Central St. Martin's and I was judging the prize for the master's program. And she didn't win the prize because she like didn't follow the rules, <laughs> which most brilliant designers don't follow the rules. And that was kind of my first inkling, I was like, okay, but she's really, really talented. And I think she has a business. So even though we didn't end up giving her the award, which was like a a moderate financial prize, I think it was like 5,000 pounds. I kind of just got in touch with her on Instagram. And I was like, look, I want to help you because I see you and I see your talent. And I think that you have a business here. And the reason why I felt that I needed to affirm to her that I saw her is because it's very easy to feel invisible in these cities. As, As a young designer, period, full stop. But as a young Black female designer, I knew that the hurdles she was up against would be exponentially bigger than some of her colleagues. So I wanted to be able to kind of like bridge the gap. I wanted to be able to give her a leg up, which I think in a lot of ways is something that has produced so many of the most enduring young designers, you know, whether it's connections or generational wealth or business acumen or savvy just by way of exposure to that. Being a young Black British Nigerian woman, those aren't crutches or those aren't support systems that she can lean on. So I was like, lean on me. And we ended up 
doing a really brilliant show that came together by reaching out to every corner of my network and asking for favors and finding that there was a like-mindedness in the fact that it's our duty to help young designers furnish their vision of creating a business because it's not as easy as being really good at what you do and then showing it at the Central St. Martin's show and then all of it being picked up by Browns, which I'm sure you remember when we were kind of coming up in fashion, that was a possibility. You know, Barney's bought out all of Proenza's first collection that they showed in college. So I just wanted to create a space where she didn't feel the pressures of having an immediately commercially viable hook to her business or speaking to a very specific audience or something that was categorizable. I wanted her to be able to kind of like incubate and and take some time to figure out who she wanted to be and the what she wanted this brand to be and not have to think about how she was going to find six figures for a fashion show. And, you know, there's also on top of that, this like immediate demand for industry-wide validation, you know? And it's so strange because it really works antithetically to the way fashion was. When I was growing up, it was like, okay, you hear like a little bit of whisper about this really brilliant young designer, and then they have a small presentation, and you're stunned to see that Vanessa Friedman has showed up to the presentation. And then maybe next season, there's a very small runway show. And there's kind of just the space to grow a business while you're also growing your creative expression and you're developing your praxis. And I do feel like that is not so possible right now. And it might be a symptom of just how fast the world is, like how quickly we consume, how much we need to produce. There being nine seasons in a year, you know, and nine collections, you know, it's, it really feeds into this idea that if you don't have it all together right away, you're never going to have it. And I don't think that that's fair. And I want to do everything that I can to um, kind of like reverse engineer that process a little bit. Yeah. And I think on top of that, I'd add that back in the day, I sound so old when I say that, but back in the day, <laughs> there was this like pressure for designers to feel like they had to do a fashion show. And that fashion show had to happen every season and if you missed a season that somehow the whole industry was going to think that you had failed somehow or that you were you know something wasn't right Mm. and the message I've been trying to get across to so many of the designers I see is like you don't have to show every season Mm. you know make sure you have something to share every season and make sure you're focusing on what you're sharing is driving both the creative side of you but it's also something where you're trying to build something longer term than just that season. But you can do that in all sorts of different ways. I mean, the fact that Phoebe Philo just dropped a collection which sold out really fast, and she is Phoebe Philo, so a lot of people wanted to see what she did, but she she didn't do a show. You know, like, I don't think that we need shows necessarily. One can do a show and then not do a show. And I think the industry kind of needs to fall out of this pattern of thinking that there's only one model. And we do need to give more space to designers early on in their careers to not have to worry about fitting and fulfilling any commercial requirements and enabling them to focus on just honing in on that creative voice, their unique creative contribution, which is why I think things like Fashion East in London, like Lulu Kennedy's been doing for like more than 20 years, that has a consistent track record of 
not just identifying, but giving space to those talents to refine their voice before they step out and go off and do their own thing. And I think that's a, it's so much more healthy model than just giving prizes to designers for hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars or whatever currency you think in. And in a way, artificially propping up designers without them, A, finding the creative voice and B, also finding the commercial model to make that viable. Yeah. And so what happens is like you can you can win like a prize and then a prize and then a prize. And then there's all of a sudden you run out of prizes and you can't build a business on the back of winning prizes. Yeah, absolutely. And what's so interesting, because I am... I think we're actually on the same committees of the same prizes, but I'm on a lot of committees for a lot of different prizes. And what I find is interesting about them is that almost ironically, so many of the metrics that go into choosing a winner have to do with the business that the winner already has and the scalability of that business and the the survival rate of that business. And I do think that that is so crucial, you know, if you're not a business person, hire a business partner immediately. Make that employee number one before you make you hire a sewer because it's super important. But I think it also feeds into exactly what we're saying, this idea that to be a young emerging designer that is valuable enough to elicit our attention as an industry has to be already commercially viable and commercially minded. I think those prizes maybe should be used to fund extraordinary visions and mentor them into a business rather than the other way around. Yeah. One thing I really love about the LVMH prize, and I think you're involved with that as well, Yeah, is like there's a bunch of us from the industry, they call them, or us, the experts. Like we get to vote for like eight designers every year out of a group of 40 that have been shortlisted. And then those eight finalists across all of the votes of the experts get put in front of all the designers at LVMH. And I'm always so curious about who those big creative directors at LVMH are going to pick. And they're all designers and they always pick the really outstanding creative people. And I really love that about that award. Totally. It's not always the case, you know, sometimes it just feels like, I don't know, like some of the prizes that are out there, they just exist because there's a prize. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I really feel emboldened and excited about the the winners of the LVMH Prize. I don't know if you met the young Japanese designer from Setsu who who yeah. won this year's prize. I mean, I remember when I met him in the, in the judging setup. In the showroom? I was, I was yeah. so, he was so good at communicating what he was doing and it was genuinely so creative and he had that incredible tailoring skill set, but also so much thoughtfulness behind it, which is the other thing that I think really makes a designer stand out apart from their creativity and having some kind of commercial acumen. I think being able to really communicate the why of your brand, yeah, the purpose of your brand, like why it needs to exist because there's so many. Absolutely. Right. We, we see so many. And if a designer can combine the creativity with the commercial acumen, with the communication. I just call it the three C's just right now. <laughs> um, you better coin um, that. Oh yeah, I better trademark that right away. But no, really, it's those three things. If you can combine those three things, that's the beginning of something that can last. Mm, I completely agree. Anyway, Gabriella, it has been a pleasure talking to you as always. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad that we had this chat. And I think 
you and I will have plenty more conversations, I'm sure, in the coming years. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us and some of the vulnerable, challenging moments. There was a lot in there for any would-be fashion editor to learn from, and I hope that you have all enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Thank you, Gabriella. Thank you. The BOF Podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF Studio team. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.